I actually think the world going to look more like a generalist. It's tough to pick one thing, but I find that I can let myself off the hook by not picking one thing and doing lots of things and learning. It's okay. Unfortunately, in tech careers, that can work. There's a lot of papers about this deep generalism. They always use the Federer example where you might have thought Federer has been doing tennis since he's four years old and he's not. Tennis was one of the things that he did. He liked football. And his parents always told him to do everything. But then later, he just started getting better at tennis than anything else. A lot of people that you think are specialists actually have a background in being more of a generalist, but then found something they love and they excel at. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Ao. Venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Node Flare is a trusted recruiting partner for startups looking to scale their technology teams. They have a curated pipeline of talent from data scientists to full-stack engineers. Learn about the latest salary trends and benchmark compensation across the region. Nodeflare offers more than 10,000 verified salary data points completely free to employers. Check out www.nodeflare.com today. Hey, Michael. Excited Hello. to have you on the show. Me too. It's been a while. I well, know we've been heard... trying to schedule this for a while. <laughs> <laughs> the hardest part about a podcast is finding a time that works. Exactly. Everybody. Well, you know, there's so many people who say good things about you, Michael. They say that you're a thinker. They say you're a doer. And they say that you're not afraid to be contrarian. So That's true. Yeah. So uh, really excited to hear a little bit about your journey. Could you just introduce yourself real quick? Yeah. So Michael Smith, pretty generic name. Been in Asia since... 1999, moved to Hong Kong from San Francisco, working in tech and never went back. I've lived in Hong Kong, China, Thailand, and Singapore, and been in Singapore for about 15 years, always involved with startups. And uh, yeah, just super excited. I'm currently working at Microsoft. Before this, I was at AWS. Before that, I was at Seed Plus. I think you know about that. And then before that, I was at some various startups. And then even Yahoo was my first. Singapore job, actually, back when Yahoo was a big deal. So yeah, I've been in the region a long time, always been in tech, if not even almost always scoped to or around startups, and just love being in Southeast Asia and love the scene. And I think I'm pretty lucky to have found it at the time that I did. And you know, you were sharing with me personally about how you've really seen not just the growth of Southeast Asia tech, but also you were there before it began, right? Land the whole thing, time. yeah. So tell me more. How did you get into it? So I think, I think a lot of times it's luck. I mean, I was kind of in a startup in San Francisco dating myself called WebLogic. It was one of the first Java things. And it was a startup and funded and got acquired. And that was my first taste of everything. But then I kind of wasn't in startups for a while. And then I got to Asia and I started working for Yahoo. Yahoo at the time kind of had a developer thing they were trying to do. So I was the Yahoo developer network guy for Southeast Asia. I took over from Shaoshan, the guy in famous coder in our, in our Singaporean ranks. And then what we were 
the developer thing, you would talk to startups, but the scene wasn't big yet. I got really lucky somehow fell into meeting Ming Wong within a first couple of weeks. <laughs> and Ming Wong's like, hey, let's get together on a Saturday down in Arab Street. I'm looking for a place to do hackerspace. And that was like week two of Singapore and Yahoo. So this predates JFDI, it predates literally all the funds. I don't think there's a jungle or Golden Gate or anybody at that time. There was hackerspace. And then later, as you know, they built JFDI. So to me, like there were people coming in and out and talking about startups. I think Techstars was even here at the time because Techstars helped JFDI get started. But it definitely wasn't like local funds and there wasn't all the government programs quite yet. And there just wasn't, apart from hackerspace, there wasn't places people were going. There wasn't co-working spaces. So it, I don't think anybody would have known we'd be looking at what we look at today from what we saw then. But I also feel like you kind of got to give credit to Singapore as in the government for correctly listening and reading the room and realizing that this could be something for Singapore. You know, the little red dot could be the home of Startup Central, both funds and family offices. And, and I think sometimes people don't give them the credit for what you see today is because of that. The early matching programs and the grants, letting Block 71 have practically free real estate. Those are big moves. I don't think you can see even other governments around the region still can't figure it out to that level. And Singapore is going on a decade of this kind of prolonged approach and it's worked, right? And I think, sure, it's come with some of the other problems like inflation and people moving in and, you know, you always have some other side of the coin, but you still got to look at it and realize, man, you have some homegrown funds that are on like fund three and fund four. You have exits, you have multinationals headquartering here. I think it's a tribute to all that. I think it's a great place to be. I feel pretty lucky to find it when I did but also to have like a front row seat and watch it all. I remember hanging out with Hien when he was still at Asia Food Channel and then coming to Block 71 with the first NSI, North Star Silicon Island. So now look at them, open space, fun, what, three or four. It's pretty amazing how fast it's happened, right? We're not talking 20 years here. You're talking like that growth path is what, seven or eight years. So yeah. Excited that it's happened and I'm glad. And I always tell people, I don't know why I would go anywhere else even now. I have no desire to leave Singapore. Yeah, shout out to Hien. I think he's really done a tremendous amount of work funding and building out the local ecosystem. It's great it's out. a Singaporean too, right? It's kind yeah. of cool that it's a local because I always associate him with being a Singaporean first and doing this and kind of wearing both hats yeah. really well to put Singapore on the map. He's not the only one, I wouldn't say that, but it's pretty important that it's been a Singaporean at the helm of one of these things. Yeah. Kind of like helping the agenda and showing what Singapore can do, plus being an operator who's turned into a funder. It's it's really awesome because it's I think it's a good piece of the ecosystem like that. And I know there's other funds that are like that as well. But I think what I always tell people is a lot of people don't know when they come from overseas and even if they're in the system, they don't realize sometimes how many homegrown funds there are between Monks and Golden Gate and Jungle. And I'm sure I'm forgetting people open space. It's pretty good, right? Like it's because you need a healthy mix sometimes of the regional slash international funds and the locals. And I think we have a good calling card of local funds that have gotten quite big and that can, you know, handle now the B's and the C's. That's, I think, another healthy part of the ecosystem. And, you know, there's a lot of doom and gloom, obviously, about the Southeast Asia ecosystem. You know, we've had collapses like Zilingo, Zipmax, sure. and there's other headlines, et cetera. 
And I understand that you have a different take on it. Yeah, I think it's like natural that this stuff's going to happen. And I think that like, I definitely don't want to get in the specifics of any one of them, but for sure things went wrong and sideways. But come on, America has got Elizabeth Holmes. So I think any time you kind of line up capital and the opportunity to make potentially fast money because a startup growing fast and a founder exiting or taking secondaries, that's much different than someone's like 20 year career to maybe do that. That's going to entice some people off the sidelines that are bad actors, right? Maybe they didn't even initially start that way, but they become that. And I think when there's kind of loose money, which is a little bit what's happened with the low interest rates, then you're going to see some of this. I don't think it's a, it's a, oh, wow, the ecosystem's bad. But I do think this ecosystem probably hasn't felt a downturn before. The dot-com thing didn't matter here. The GFC didn't really affect startups. So you kind of see in the first true downturn, this is the most layoffs you've ever seen in big tech in our own backyard. I can get down about it. I think people can. I think, you know, I'm fortunate that I'm okay, but I know people that are not. They're for sure down about it. And I totally get that. But I don't think you can put a stamp on the whole thing and say, it's messed up, it's it's terrible. I think that's wrong because you still got to look at the starting point to where we are. And I do think the one thing you can kind of say about the ecosystem that's probably a fact is the exit environment's not fantastic. The public markets are not as good as the American mm-hmm. ones. And the few that have tried it, their stocks are not going well. So that's probably a fact. And that does create this you can see a lot of these funds where their fund one is not really exited and they're on their like fund four because of the ecosystem. But I think it's natural and I think it's a problem with the markets. I think it's not China, it's not India. Southeast Asia isn't one unit, right? People like to act like it is. It's not one unit. It's a a discrete group of countries. So I do think that's a real predicament, but I don't think that that's what's caused some of these problems. Mm. I think the loose money... I think the crypto kind of nuttiness, there was some good in it. There was a lot of bad. It all kind of swelled into this too much capital, people getting rich, plus where was the legitimate stuff? It's a fact. You can see it. But I don't think it would be fair to kind of saran wrap the whole ecosystem and say, ooh, it's pretty bad over here. Because you and I both know you walk around on the street every day. That's not the general feeling. And I think obviously you have a lot of experience seeing this across the region and across different roles. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that. You're an operator, right? You're working in startups. And then after that, you chose to be an investor for a while. So sure. I want to love to hear a little bit about what was your thinking at that decision? What was going through your mind? I would love to tell you it's all planned, but yeah. it's definitely not. I think there's two rules of thumb that I have realized throughout my life. I'm more of a generalist than a specialist. But I guess I just embrace it. I'm okay with it. I've done tech stuff. I've done sales. I've done product management. I've done marketing. I would never probably say I'm amazing at each one individually, but I feel like I'm a solid generalist and I enjoy the context switching and learning. And then I think the second thing, and I'm pretty sure I wasn't as good as a person as I should have been in my late 20s and early 30s. We learn a lot, but I've tried to really over the last 15 years or so, really think consciously about trying to be a good person in the ecosystem. And I think people know me, know that you can book time with me. I'm not an ego about it. I'm like, yeah, great. Let's book some time. Let's have a coffee. I have like seven Calendly links to manage it. And 
because I kind of espouse to networking as a form of paying it forward. Because it's like, if I can meet you and help you, that's great. That's all I need out of it. And maybe you can do the same for someone else. We all won, right? There's no pay gate, paywall to that scenario. But that over the last probably 20 years, it is probably the key to my career because literally every job is not so much me raising my hand and saying, I want to go there. Somebody's calling me. Mm. And it's usually somebody that's in a past job, may not be the very latest one who says, hey, this recruiter is asking me about this. And I said, Michael is perfect. You should call him. Or someone else says, or they just know the hiring manager. And that's how I've gotten to everything. It wasn't planned, but I feel like because I kind of trust these people that I've come to like and I've come to spend time with, when they call and say, hey, so-and-so's doing this and they're looking for that, you should talk to them. My immediate reaction is, I should talk to them. <laughs> and that's even if I'm happy in my job, I'm still going to talk to you. I'm like, I want to hear about what you're doing. And then I'll hear about the role and then I'll go, you know what? It's been three or four years doing what I'm doing. It's not bad. I'm okay with it. But wow, this sounds a little bit more interesting and a change. I'm going to do it. And that's kind of how I've marched through all the roles. And then I think the investor thing also happened because I worked with David Gowdy at Yahoo. And mm. then David ends up at Jungle and then David calls me. And then it's like, yeah, I wasn't even thinking about this, but that sounds pretty interesting. And then I'm there, right? And then that led me to AWS and AWS led me to Microsoft. So I think it's... I'm lucky. I'll always admit that because I think it's true. But at the same time, I think I've had to try to embrace generalism. And I also yeah. try to make sure that I'm, you know, I always say, come hell or high water, try to be nice to people, even in my work environment, because I think that leads to these other things. So these two things together has allowed me to move around. And I would say the North Star is it must be around startups. So if I'm doing a seed fund, it's for startups. If I was at AWS, I was selling to startups. At Microsoft, I'm trying to do startups. Even the Singtel thing was a startup inside of Singtel. I have to be right. around that because it moves faster. It's a little more democratic and it's tech that's interesting. If you took me out of that pattern, I think I wouldn't do very well and I wouldn't be very satisfied either. And I think what's interesting is that I think your love and passion for startups kind of like comes out and shines true. It's interesting that you got the experiment with being an operator and an investor and your comrade and colleague Tiang, for example, <laughs> your partner in crime back then, yes. you know, he was on a previous podcast and he shared that he joined for a certain set of reasons, different, but then more importantly, he chose to continue being an investor. And so they often say, even if you embrace generalism, there are different roles you can embrace generalism yep. with. So what was your learning to say like, okay, you know what? I'd rather be an operator and executive with this path? How is that? I think it wasn't super thought out. I think it's like, without getting too much into the weeds, I don't think we probably thought that like Seed Plus was going to be one fund and that was mm -hmm. it. I don't think it was really the roadmap per se, but that's what happened. When yeah. it came to that juncture, I think I probably have, you know, I have three kids. I'm a foreigner living in Singapore. It's not quite as cheap as a Singaporean mm. living here, but I, I was kind of thinking like, one of the things... When people talk to me, I'm overly candid. I'll admit that the startups and funds are always what I call delayed compensation jobs. If it works, if you get an exit, you're going to get paid a lot of money later. Same with the fund, right? But it doesn't really come to you month to month or even annually. And I think 
I'd kind of looked at my career for 10 plus years as being on what I call delayed compensation type of jobs that they were startups or they were funds. And I haven't had an exit in any of my path in Asia and my kids were getting older. And I'm like, you know what? I probably just need a normal job for a while, but in startups and maybe at some executive level as kind of a stopgap to doing something different down the road. So that's what led me to AWS and then AWS led me to Microsoft. But I definitely miss investing um, a lot. And Tiang knows that I bug him all the time. I think we were all sitting there together trying to figure things out. And he was very headstrong about, I'm going to go start a fund. And I really applaud him for sticking with it and doing it. And I think he built something pretty amazing with Forge. But for me, it just the timing was off for what I needed out of life. But I suspect I'm going to eventually come back around at a startup or at a fund or even building something myself because I don't think I'm a little bit older than everybody that I'm usually working with. I still feel like I have one in me or have this desire to craft something or like I say, just build something. I don't know if it's a fund, a startup, a studio. I'm kind of leaving it open-ended. But I think once you kind of do those things, it's hard to think you would never do them again because it is very interesting and fun and can be financially rewarding. But at the same time, you're just constantly meeting founders and doing stuff and it's very invigorating. I would say I miss it pretty dearly. <laughs> you said this phrase, embrace generalism. What does yeah. that mean to you? And I think you implied that there was a trade-off. There was some requirement to come to grapple with it. That's a good question. So I think like my upbringing is pretty non-standard. So I went to grammar school through eighth grade and America's one through eight and then ninth through 12. So I went to grammar school through eighth grade at a small school. And then where my parents lived and where we were at, at the time, high school is quite a ways away. And my parents were kind of like, I think we're going to homeschool. And then my other brother, and I'm like, okay, great. So I did homeschooling for high school. I never went to high school, never set foot on a campus or anything. It was all remote. And this is before computers. You're not even talking remote computer. It's they send you a box of books every quarter and you have your tests and your mom administers the test. So that was my high school. And then I went to junior college for computer science and writing and mostly had to go to night school and work during the day to afford it that I've always been kind of like, there's a different route, but I always was around the technology. But when I dropped into technology, I started to realize pretty early on, I'm not a good engineer. I'm not a good coder. I like it. I actually still make myself crazy by like, let me try to play with Rust. It's a new language. And I literally like, hate all three hours of it, but I'm trying to keep my mind around code. But I realized engineering was not going to be my thing. So then I kind of said, well, okay, I got into sales engineering and then I got into product management. I started to systematically work it as a way of getting better at the whole thing. But I would probably never say I'm amazing at one thing. Now, sometimes I suspect if I was doing one thing and I finished university, maybe my path would look more like this. I don't really know, but I actually think the world's going to look more like a generalist type of thing. And I talked to my kids about that, that how do you know what to focus on? The world is changing, especially with all this AI stuff. It's tough to pick one thing, but I find that I can let myself off the hook by not picking one thing and doing lots of things and learning. It's okay. Unfortunately, in tech careers, that can work. And there's a lot of papers about this deep generalism, they call it. And I think one of the ones I always like is the guy that I'm basing on the name. He wrote a book about this. And one of the things is that they always use the Federer example where 
you might have thought Federer has been doing tennis since he's four years old, and he's not. Tennis was one of the things that he did. He liked football and I think something else. And his parents always told him to do everything. But then later, he just started getting better at tennis than anything else. But I think it was not until his like late teens, early 20s that he focused on it, but always kept talking about football. So I think it's called Rome. It's this idea. But a lot of people that you think are specialists actually have a background in being more of a generalist, but then found something they love and they excel at. And I think that's what's happened over the later stage of my career. I, I do think there's some conscientious to it because you could do a lot of things and not do them well, and that might not be a good strategy either. But I think it works well to say I can cover a range of things, but articulate them around startups and an ecosystem. And then that's kept me quite grounded. And I don't know if this works for everybody. I think it's, I see other people just say, I'm going to be a really great coder. And that's what I do. And that's great. I think it depends what excites you. What floats your boat probably might help decide this for you. But the advice I give my kids is, hey, I'm kind of worried about the future. So the best way to have an insurance policy for the future is either be an amazing specialist, like you really nail something, or realize that you're probably going to have a lot of different careers in your life and you should just be ready for it now that that's kind of how it'll work. So yeah. I got to ask, you have a four-year-old, a 10-year-old, <laughs> a 15-year-old, right? And yeah. you know, I think a lot of parents out there are very anxious. People are really anxious before, right? Security, economics, and so forth. But with technology, there's a big wave. And you kind of actually have like what kids both in the Gen Z and probably the Generation Alpha. Yeah, that's what they call them. They're, they're split. <laughs> they're split, right? So they're actually on both sides of that arbitrary defined, right? So I was just kind of curious. It's starting to talk a little bit about it, which is what about your own childhood are you still teaching your kid in terms of principles? And what are you doing differently from how you were raised versus how you're raising your kids? Yeah, I think one of the differences, I grew up in the mountains and like free range kind of thing. So I think it's a little bit different than your Singapore. But one of the things I try to teach all my kids is just some level of independence. And I think Singapore is, for some people, they might realize it's a really great place for kids to teach independence. When my kids start primary one, because they're in local school, they take the public bus to school, as I do. And I just start teaching them a couple of weeks before that that's the route. And as you do, and I put them on the bus, I'll probably ride with them the first week and then I'm done. And in fact, my daughter had to get special permission as a primary one to leave the school campus because in Singapore schooling, they don't like primary one students leave the campus alone. You have to be primary two. So I had to go down to the school and sign some papers that said she's allowed to leave by herself because that's the way I, I'm okay with parenting her. So independence for me is big. It's like, there's the laundry, there's the food. And that's something I learned from my mom because my parents had five boys or each four years apart. And oh, wow. mother was not going to do everything. There was always an age where she would say, that's the washing machine. That's the thing to cook. So I try to do that. I don't think I'm doing as well as my mom did, but I try to do that. And the second thing is just try to like not ground in them that it's the academic testing regime that's going to make you successful, that those things will help you, but it's kind of getting grounded in what you like to do and the way you learn and the way you might become self-sufficient. Also making money is probably more important because I can't recall what I did on my tests when I was young at this age of my life, does anybody, but you know how Singapore works. They're very focused, your PSLEs. And I get it. I think for some people that have an academic path, they're really focused on it. But what I try to tell them is it's not the only thing. It's important. You just spend mm. some time on it, but 
you also should get outside and play at the park and you should learn music. So I'm trying to make them a little more of a building that range idea into them and make them independent and hope for the best because I think they still decide what to do on their own. I'm not sure if I'm winning that battle, but I try to say that it is your life. You should try to be happy. But I think sometimes they can get to lose a lot of kid time because they're so focused on these academic principles. And I did well in school, but I wouldn't necessarily say that school made any sort of special difference in my life other than learning how to learn and learning how to test. So I'm doing my best there to try to say life is going to be a long journey. And this generalism thing might work a little bit better for you, but you also need to be self-sufficient. So when we talked to my son about careers, you're going to need to make money. It's a fact. What type of things are going to work for you? What do you like? Is tech something you like? Is it the media stuff? Is it security stuff? Is it programming? You won't know until you probably start doing it and figuring it out because you might find that you're picking it today. But if that was your eight hour a day job, you start to go, whoa, I don't like it. Well, you won't know. So I told him that's when you want to intern and play around a little bit. But I think it's back to that range thing. I think you can be a safer human in that mode, but that's my personal bet. But you're probably right to ask if that's what I'm imparting on him. I think so. But I think you'll have to look at them in 10 years and figure out <laughs> if it works. You have kids, you know what I mean? Is it delayed compensation as well? Yes. <laughs> Delayed childhood. How did it work? Ask me in 10 years. I think that's the core of it, which is I think every parent is kind of like scratching their head, myself included. I'm like watching my little kid. She sees an iPhone and she's like, oh, I'm going to leopard crawl my way there. Highly motivating. Food, yeah, I'm all very I, double standard, right? Like, oh, don't use your iPad more than five minutes. And we're sitting there with our phones. Beep, beep, like, oh, yeah, it's work. It's, it's like, okay. Oh, I mean, yeah, it's yeah. work. Like, oh, here, yeah, smile for the Instagram. You know? <laughs> my four-year-old gets really good at this. She's like, put down the phone. Look at me. She's already doing that. And I'm like, okay, put down the phone. Because I know what she means. I'm trying to pretend that I'm paying attention to her, but I'm not. But it's fair, right? Like, it's totally fair. I think parents want double standards. Oh, it's like, welcome to the world. Yeah. My first lesson, <laughs> hypocrisy. Exactly. Can you spell that, please? Yeah. <laughs> I think there's an interesting piece when you say that, that duality, right? That parents love screen time. Yeah. And parents are guilty and confused Themselves. about screen time for the kids. <laughs> And I think that's that same dynamic of so much of technology for every technology change or innovation. Yeah, my daughter loves to, because she's a wordy for some reason at four years old. And so she'll say some sentence with a new word. And I'm like, well, that's pretty good. Where'd you learn that word? Uh, and I'll say, did you learn that word at school? Like, I learned it on YouTube. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, crap, <laughs> I can't say YouTube bad. She's learning words. <laughs> she's probably lying just to kind of like prep up the YouTube thing. But I also realized, yeah, they do learn from it. You know, should they be on it all the time? Probably not, but they are learning things. So it's, you know, I don't know what it looked like because I can't, like when we were young myself, yeah. there just wasn't anything like this. I don't yeah. even know what, how to compare to it. I remember being kind of latched to the TV and my mom said, I watched a lot of TV. And I'm like, mm -hmm. really? I did? She goes, yeah, all the time. And I'm like, because she goes, it was something to watch. She goes, now you've changed the, the YouTube thing. It's like a TV. Maybe we're all like this. I mean, yeah, I grew up listening to watching G.I. Joe and all these TV shows. And now I think everyone's watching YouTube. I think a lot of folks are obviously worried about AI, right? It's like the monster under the bed a little bit. It's like, a, it's going to take our jobs. It's going to take our communication. It's going to lie to us. It's going to be the new best friend. Oh, it's going to murder us in the form of a robot that is our kid's best friend. So there's a lot of anxiety. And so I think a lot of parents are asking themselves how to prepare, how to do it. How do you think about it? How it's really funny. I keep telling my kids, use ChatGTV. You might love it. And they tune it out pretty quickly because they like the interaction with their friends and stuff. So I don't know. I don't think any of us can really predict this stuff. But I also think it's important as people in technology to do our best to do the right thing with it. But as you know, 
I think crypto is a fantastic example of people doing the wrong thing, but you could also have done the right thing, but a bunch of people did the wrong thing. Mm. I think the world is so close to feeling that and some of the social media thing that I do think the government's all kind of saying we should be talking about this is really a good thing. I'm not against regulation. So I think it's good that everybody's having this dialogue that says, hey, we kind of saw what social media does to kids of a certain age, and that's bad. A lot of my kids, they don't have a phone. My son didn't have a phone until he's 15 because I just think it's bad for them. And my daughter has a, I found this phone that's like an LCD screen that only makes phone calls and does messages. And that's her phone because I want her to have something if there's an emergency, but there's nothing she can do with it. There's no social media. There's no camera. And I think this idea of like unfettered access to a supercomputer to an 11-year-old, it's not a good thing. I don't think it's a good thing. And I'm glad I didn't have that situation. But I do think computers are a part of our life and AI is real. I'm mostly in the camp that says this is really going to be like a superpower and allow us to do more things. But often there'll be people that are always a bad actor for everything you do. But I do think it'll help more often than not. But I do think it's an interesting time because it's probably moving faster at a speed that we're not used to. I think there's a lot of figuring it out. It's good that the governments are having dialogue. I think it's good that big tech is having kind of an open discussion about this. As a parent, I don't know where to go with it. I told my daughter, you might, you know, so she does little stories with it. She thinks it's kind of fun because she's like, writes a couple sentences and says, let's make a longer sentence. So I do think there's going to be an interesting aspect that kids that are used to computers are probably going to glom to this. And the other thing I would say is, haven't we always wanted to talk to computers? And this is where I kind of get back to when people get really crazy about this stuff. I'm like, guys, it's mostly been in the domicile, people writing code, because that's what they're doing. They're talking to the chip with code. This is going to allow everybody to talk to the chip and also have a lot more data. Isn't that pretty cool? Because mostly when I watch Star Trek, I'm excited by it. But mm. I think it's just early days. But I kind of feel like we're getting down to where the communication style is almost generally how we work, which is speaking. I mean, come on, reading came when in our lives. Speaking was before that. So I feel like in some weird way, this is like coming full circle that you're going to be able to speak to something that has all this knowledge and stuff. And of course, the good or bad come out of it, but you could get what you want, what you put into it, which is mostly good. So I'm excited about it. I do think if you bring this to the startup ecosystem, I think it's a pretty potentially scary and or amazing moment because... I think if you're a startup that's not using it, and I don't mean to say that it takes over the world and you have to use it, but I think simply to say, if you're a startup and you're not using it, you're probably going to get disrupted by somebody who does. And I think that's just a foregone conclusion. And that doesn't mean you become an AI startup or you're crazy about it. It just means if you can use this to be more productive as your startup, your capital will go longer, or you'll reach more market, you should. And if you're not, somebody like you in the same business is going to, and that's probably going to disrupt you. And I think the pace of this will move quite fast. So I think in the startup scene, you got to pay attention to the stuff. You got to use it and you got to have an opinion on it. I don't think you can sit back and say, oh, I don't really need chat GPT yet. It's like, that's not what it's about. It's about AI kind of hitting the next step up. And I think as investors, you got to think the same thing. This thing that I'm investing in, if they're not using AI to do their job better, are they going to get disrupted by somebody who is? But on the other side of this, I would be really careful about investing in pure AI things because I think it's so early. And I think the infrastructure people are going to get settled. I think there'll be a lot of new incumbents. It'll probably be a heavy capital gain. So 
I'm not sure I would go raise a bunch of money as a local startup to kind of go head to head with the AI players yet. I think that's pretty dangerous, but I think you got to have an opinion. I think you got to look into it. And I think generally speaking, the world's going to improve because of these things. But I know there's always the other side of the coin. Yeah. And on that note, could you share about a time that you personally have been brave? (laughs) I think for me, it was my move to Asia as a person restarting my life Mm -hmm. was probably the bravest time in my life because I'm born and bred in the States. Sure, I traveled. I've been in Europe. I've been in Asia. I've worked. But it was just literally like, I'm going to relocate. <laughs> and I was thinking between Europe and Asia, it ended up being Hong Kong. For me, Hong Kong was a pretty big deal at the time to move to something like that because I wasn't knowing a lot about Asia and I didn't speak any languages. I just was kind of like, this looks like the heart of Asia at the time that I'm looking at. So that's 1999 and I'm going to go. And it was kind of a one-way ticket on the move because it was like I was moving, but I didn't really have a plan. And 24 years later, I'm here. I think that was my bravest moment as a person because I didn't have any family here. I didn't have any idea of where to take it next. But after a year or so, I was like, I'm staying in Asia. I don't have a plan, but I'm staying in Asia. And that's what I did. And I'm glad I did it. It's brought a whole different, you know, everything from family to just even being in the startup ecosystem. Because I think if I was in America starting at the same time, maybe I could have done okay too. But I think it would have been a much different thing that I'm experiencing today because there's all the cultures that come along with it. It's so diverse. So for me, I think that's my bravest life moment. There's probably other mini ones. But that's a pretty big one and it put me on a trajectory and it's the reason I'm even talking to you is because I'm in Asia and I'm in the scene because I got on a plane how many years ago and said I'm moving to Hong Kong and I'm glad I did. And it's been a great experience. I think it's a little bit tough, as you know, when you get older and you have your kids to keep having this mobility. I miss that because I kind of think maybe there's another country to go to in Asia, but the kids kind of need that stability right now. But I think that's my bravest moment. And we'll always say like, I think I'm also very lucky that it all worked out quite well for me, both from family, my wife's Thai, meeting her when I lived overseas, having the kids, to becoming a resident in Singapore. Again, not a plan, but it all kept falling into place and I'm here. I'm pretty thankful for it. Wow. On that note, I'd love to summarize the three big themes I got from this. First of all, thank you so much for sharing about how you've embraced generalism, both as a philosophy, but also in all the different steps along the way, right? You love startups, you love tech, you discovered that. And yet you also use that time to experiment with being an investor being a builder. And like you said, maybe you have one more in the gas tank for one more down the road or whatever that is. But I love that trade-off slash decision you made. And I thought that was a very reflective and thoughtful way of sharing it. The second, of course, is thank you so much about sharing your parenting philosophy in terms of <laughs> how you were raised versus how you're raising your kids differently in terms of environment. I really like what you said about really holding true about a concept of sharing independence. I think such a beautiful story about what your mom gifted you and your siblings. And I think it's such a beautiful story about what you're gifting your kids as well. And now I know in primary one, I need to get that waiver form because I'm going to do the same, right? (laughs) Yeah, teach them one. And lastly, I really enjoyed what you shared about a little bit about parenting, technology, waves, artificial intelligence. But I think I really liked what we discussed a little bit about at one level, you could say double standards and hypocrisy. But if you go deeper level, it's more like, hey, there's good faith factors, there's bad faith factors. There's the future, there's the current, there's the certainty, the uncertainty. And I thought you did a nice way of sharing some of the duality that's happening there. And 
it's not to say that there's any answers, but I think like you said, there's a certain approach that you're taking personally. And thank you so much for being transparent about how you're doing it. And like you said, we have to find out in 10 years or more how it goes. In 10 years, we're like, oh, we were wrong. Who knows? But I thought it was very nice for sharing that. Well, thanks for having me on too. Fun. It was fun. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.